Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. On two separate trips, he traveled throughout the southeastern corner of the North American continent. He collected plants and seeds, which he sent to interested amateur plantsmen and gardeners, as well as to some of the foremost naturalists of his age. But he also collected animals and spent his time making drawings of birds. Eventually, he would even read a scientific paper before the Royal Society in London that was to first describe the migration of birds. But the highlight of his career was a magnificent set of illustrated volumes depicting birds with a level of naturalistic detail hitherto unknown. This pioneering naturalist was not, as some of you might have guessed, John James Audubon, nor was it, as some of the smart kids in the front row might think, either John or William Bartram. It was Mark Catesby, whose journeys through Virginia, the Carolinas, and the Bahamas, lasting together over a decade, led many years later to the publication of The Natural History of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahama Islands, the first ever illustrated account of American flora and fauna. And yet, very few of you have ever heard his name. With me to talk about Mark Catesby and his world, both natural and cultural, is Patrick Dean, author of Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures in a New World. Patrick was last on the podcast in episode 223, when we talked about the first ascent of Denali by an unusual group of explorers. Patrick, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. It's great to be back to talk about Mr. Catesby today. So... Catesby, what are, before we get into his context, what are his dates, more or less? Born 1683, died 1749. So he perfectly, I mean, per, with almost like Whiggish, you know, precision, um, he captures the first part of like the long 18th century uh, the and the Augustan age. So like if we, when I make political dates for it, let's say 1688, you know, uh, the, the fall of the, the House of Stuart in 1745, the last gasp for the House of Stuart to get back, you know, into power. Catesby kind of covers those political dates. But there's a lot where we're not going to talk about politics probably again. Uh, there's a lot going on besides politics. Um, you quote uh, Alexander Pope uh, at one point, order is heaven's first law, which is sort of the spirit of the Augustan age. Could you describe why and how Catesby fits into that spirit? That's right. You know, it's the, it's the English enlightenment. It's, um, it's the same sort of, uh, passion for classification and ordering of knowledge and, and discovery. You know, we'll see it a half a decade, half a century later when Thomas Jefferson is recording the temperature every day at Monticello and, and all that sort of thing. And that, that, uh, it was a perfect, a perfect environment for someone like Catesby with his passion for natural history, um, for the flora and fauna of the world. He wanted to discover and, and write it down and learn about it. Um, he was uh, a wonderful Enlightenment figure, uh, embodying his age to a large degree. And it does it in in really complex ways because it's also the era of commerce. It's this is the era of trade. This is the era of the. Bank of England, the South Sea Bubble, and Catesby's, there is no 
science for the sake of science yet. There are no science for the sake of scientific expeditions. So this is also very intimately bound up with the desire for profit. That's right. I mean, the, the one of the really interesting things to, uh, to research in this book was um, not only what you're saying, but also the, the way in which uh, natural history and discovery and exploration is bound up not only with um, the growing empire, which is really taking off about this time, the British Empire, um, but also the slave trade, which mm-hmm. sort of goes hand in hand with the growth of empire. And so, uh, you know, he's Casey's out here on the edge of empire, um, doing these things that he wants to do for the sake of knowledge, but he is also serving, never forgetting that he's serving patrons, powerful patrons, um, back in Great Britain who want to know what's there, not only for pure knowledge, but also for possible commercial benefit. Right, and we'll talk about some of the people that preceded him or followed him. But they're interested in, you know, can you grow silk in Virginia or South Carolina? How do you make all this pay? You know, how, how and places like the Bahamas, which are really the armpit of empire, um, they're the back end of nowhere. And, but how can you even make the Bahamas pan out, earn a, earn a living? Because we're not just doing this because we want to gain places to put a flag. No, these th- they, these places have to you know pay their way. They have to earn their keep. That's right, and that and that uh, that quest on the half on the behalf of the empire leads to um, you know Jamaica becoming this the single richest uh, source of, of income for the for the British Empire um, in the early 1700s. Following right after, and also the Barbados at one point held that title, mm-hmm. and then it was South Carolina when the rice, when the rice, uh, um, you know, the, the rice plantation economy really kicked off. So, and then Indi- and then indigo taking I, two things that aren't found in South Carolina, <laughs> bringing them from somewhere else I, to plant them there. I mean, it's and talk about like a c- continuity through the uh, British Enlightenment through the long 18th century. I mean, it's. The mutiny on the bounty happens because they want to get breadfruit in the in the South Pacific to bring to the Caribbean to feed slaves. Right. So there's always things like that. This is like a hallmark, a recurring theme of the 18th century. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you know, another thing that I that I found really interesting, and I I just I just want to tell this to people all the time, is how we've always um, you, you and I were talking before the podcast started about uh, you know history, American history before the Revolution. And uh, this researching this book really brought home to me how you know we're trained to think of the colonies as one one uh, monolith, you know, and we also seem to skip from you know um, Plymouth Rock to um, you know Concord almost. Mm-hmm. No, I I, I it's, uh, you're you're being uh, that's a little harsh. I would say maybe the Salem witch trials <laughs> to the to, to Battle of Lexington. That's true. There we go. Or maybe or maybe the French Indian War for the really educated right. high school teachers. Right. But the fact is that mm-hmm. South Carolina was an outpost of the Caribbean mm-hmm. empire economy. You know, it's it was uh, it was much more like Barbados and Jamaica than it was like Virginia or Massachusetts. And it was much, much richer early in the 18th century than those places were. So, uh, yeah. And of 13, of the 13 colonies, well, we could dispute that we could argue about it, but it's one of the last ones to be settled in the 1670s. So it's, it's, it has a later takeoff too, but then a faster, a faster launch than other ones do. Exactly. And Hazeby is there 
you know, fairly early on. I mean, you know, he's, yeah. they still hadn't really, the, the rice economy still had not really taken off in case we lands there in 1722. So uh, he is, I mean, it's almost, he's almost bound to be a naturalist, as we'll see. He's born into a certain, mil, a very tight milieu. If, if I, I didn't remember this, his family connections, but can we talk about some of the predecessors uh, in as English naturalists upon whom he drew, not just intellectually, but personally? Yeah, so his um, his mother's family, the Jekylls, the Jekylls and the Catesbys both lived in, um, in England, northeast of London, in Essex and in Suffolk. And uh, his uncle, Nicholas Jekyll, um, was a naturalist and had a botanical garden and was extremely well connected with the, the powers that be in terms of natural history in, in England at the time. There was this burgeoning intellectual network of letters and correspondence and visitation and sharing of information that was going on in England at this time. It's like the first boom in, in, uh, in sort of botanical knowledge going on at that point. And uh, John Ray was one of the major one of the, I started to say major dudes. One of the major. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. It's it's a this podcast is rated explicit by Apple, so you can say whatever you want. <laughs> he was one of the major figures of his time, and, and we knew that we know that he interacted with with uh, Nicholas Jekyll, and very likely with Catesby himself. And Catesby was young man. Okay, this is such a. I mean, this is why I don't have many people that do like. Uh, 18th century stuff because I, I would probably interrupt continuously and completely nerd out and I'm going to destroy the audience interest but <laughs> John Ray is awesome I mean John Ray is so fascinating I mean among other things did you know that he tutored Nathaniel Bacon uh, and Nathaniel, who then went to lead Bacon's rebellion in 1676 like the kind of the worst internal rebellion yeah he took Nathaniel Bacon on a grand tour so even John Ray as a tutor is like embedded in this network of Virginia and Virginia interests the Jekylls uh, there's a Jekyll Island off Georgia right. named after another Jekyll one of these Jekylls by Oglethorpe to whom he gave money and all the rest of that stuff so these it's it's fascinating that that Catesby's family and the people that he knows are already embedded in a l l network of connections to America that go back 50 years already by even Catesby's time. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, and from all we can tell, Catesby definitely took advantage of those connections in that network when he started planning his own, his own career as a naturalist. So what would he have learned from John Ray? What's John Ray's big idea? Well, you know, he's he's thought of as the the natural theology guy. He was he mm -hmm. was uh, his, one of his major works was about sort of explaining um, the the profusion of plants and the, the burdency of the world in, in terms of God's uh, creation behind all of it. And so, seeking to explain uh, diversity and and all those sort of things pre Darwin um, in terms of in terms of theology, and uh, so. I think Catesby inherited some of that. We do have references, religious references in the natural history. Um, but I think, uh, you know, in addition to past that and beyond that, it's just the, it's just the, um, again, it's that, that ferment, that intellectual ferment that's, that's going on. And Ray was like that too. He had more interest than just botany. He was interested in fossils and all sorts of things like that. So. Yeah. Ray is one of these Parson naturalists that lasts 
through the history of the Church of England. I mean, he he's an interesting character because he renounced his his uh, he was defrocked because he wouldn't swear an oath of allegiance to after 1688, I think. Um, even though he was a Whig, I'm pretty sure he was not. Uh, but he, nonetheless, he thought it was illegitimate to break his vow to the the James uh, King James the second. So he. Uh, so he was a, a clergyman without a living. That's right. Um, or, but he was also a really good, as I understand it, a really good field botanist. He's a really good collector, and that's and he must have taught Catesby some of that uh, how to how to go about doing that, how to look, how to see things. That's, that's really true. I think one of the one of the um, sad gaps in what we know about Catesby is exactly how he how he learned those things and how he went about doing what he did um, mm-hmm. when he was in Charleston. We don't have any. Um, you know, daily journals like Darwin's or anything like that to uh, to go by with Catesby. So, but he obviously was an amazingly perceptive person. I mean, the details of the of the natural history when when um, when you think that he was drawing from life almost all the time, unlike our buddy um, Audubon. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> the bird killer. That's right. And describing <laughs> and describing all of this based on only what he could see and write down while he was out there. I mean, it's just an yeah. thing to think about. Um, so he actually, uh, we've been referring to his, his, his time in Carolina, but he actually, this all starts when he goes to Virginia. We should explain that he is a gentleman, um, meaning that he can support himself without having to work. So he's able to do things like, we don't know really much of what he's doing before he goes to Virginia the first time, do we? That's I mean, right. 1712 is the really, um, uh, the first we know of him doing much of anything, he went to, as you said, he went to Williamsburg with his sister, who was going. He's twenty nine. Hmm? He's twenty nine at the time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. twenty nine. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. he's going to Virginia with his sister, who's going there to be with her husband, um, and to you know to reunite the family. And uh, he spends seven years roaming around, uh, meets up with William Bird the second, and um, becomes a, a buddy of his. You know advises him on planting and things like that and spends a good bit of time at his um, at his um, plantation mm-hmm. goes to the Shenandoahs goes to um, what we now call uh, Delmarva the Delmarva Peninsula um, oh, does he? Okay. and uh, basically did a, did whatever he should have done and needed to do to sort of start himself off as a naturalist and what was he do was he take was he collecting things do we, do we know if he was we don't have any of his, we know that he must have been drawing things, but we don't have any of his preliminary sketches, do we? That's right. That's right. We know that he he was doing some collecting of, of plants and seedlings and things like that, and sending them back to certain people in England, not under contracts, not to satisfy anyone's demands, but just because it was something he was interested in, and he wanted to sort of, you know, it's easy to see him sort of trying to establish himself as a naturalist um, with that network um, back in in Britain, and we know that. By the time he returns in 1719, he has a reputation not only as a naturalist but as a as a brilliant um, artist of of flora and fauna. So before we uh, get to who he was sending stuff to, because this is really important too. Um, so he's friends with William Byrd. We should describe who William Byrd is. Um, I, uh, you you go ahead. Otherwise, <laughs> I'll go on for ten minutes. So. <sighs> Well, Bird was the scion of one of the founding families of Virginia, um, a very important and, and rich and powerful man. Had the largest library in the colonies, um, I believe. 
Um, and uh, so just a very important person and, and infamous in some ways, especially for his diaries. Um, They're very honest. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, we don't have to talk about that. Um, um, and he's, uh, and he's, if you, if you re can remember from high school, some of you probably read his history of the dividing line or an extract that's usually trotted out as an example of colonial literature. It's because the birds, which he inherited from his, um, his dad, William Bird, the first, we call him the first, even though they're all William Bird, we just have to distinguish them, but they had, uh, they had inherited basically a license for Indian trade, um, which, uh, meant that they were considered experts on the West. And they also had a sort of, am all of them had a sort of amateur virtuoso interest in plants and animals. Uh, William Byrd II sent back a, a rattlesnake to the Royal Society and related every s silly legend he had ever heard from anybody about it, about them. But this is the kind of stuff that they did. This is the stuff that they thought a gentleman in should be able to do. That's right. That's exactly right. And, um, and Bird actually was sent over to England and was um, went to the same elementary school as Catesby's brothers. Right, right, um, right. And perhaps Catesby himself. Again, it's another another gap in our knowledge. Those records are lost. So, so, and I would imagine he also on the Eastern Shore. He probably is friends with another very prominent Virginia amateur nationalist, John Custis, who is William Bird's brother-in-law. Uh, and who is, I think, has his portrait later painted with a tulip and uh, has an extensive correspondence with one of with some, with several of the people that Catesby sends plants and seeds to. That's right. I'm not sure we have any definitive connection made between Custis and Catesby, but he certainly figures in that time for sure. Yeah, they have to, they have to be. So he's sending, so who are some of the people that Catesby's corresponding with? Because these will be his, this is a hierarchical age. That's right. Um, you work under with patronage. You need people to see you through things. Um, so, who are some of these people that will become his patrons? Well, the main one in during his time in Virginia is Samuel Dale, um, who was who was sort of put in this, sort of the same league as Ray in terms of being part of that that network of, of botanists and horticulturalists and, and natural historians in general. Um, he also had a connection to. Um, to the Jekylls and to the Catesby's and to that world of, of Essex and Sussex, Suffolk, where, where Catesby was. Um, but then once Catesby is back in England, the major connection he makes is to William Sherard, um, who uh, would have a huge uh, role to play in Catesby's life after. And, who, and who's that? Uh, Sherard was, uh, he... He studied law. He came to be, after Ray died, he was considered the, the, the foremost English botanist of the day. Uh, you know, he, was, uh, he studied law, and then he studied, he was a gentleman, apparently, of means. He, uh, he studied law, and then he studied botany in Paris and Leiden, and then he became the British consul at Smyrna. Um, so uh, he, by the time he came back to England, he was wealthy enough to be nothing more than a patron of botanists. So... Um, he was a major, as I say, he was a major figure in Catesby's life. Most of the letters we have from Catesby are to Sherard back in London once Catesby goes to South Carolina. What's his relationship with another sort of uh, naturalist uh, titan, uh, Hans Sloan? Sloan, yes. Sloan will come on the scene um, as one of his, as one of Catesby's major patrons for the trip to South Carolina in 1722. 
Um, okay. He's one of the ones uh, who will expect a quid, a quid pro quo from Catesby. I mean, he was he was a relentless, aggressive collector, um, oh, as you well yeah. know. <laughs> Enough of one so that his collection was so big that the only thing they could think to do with it was to start the British Museum around it. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. um, and the and the Chelsea Gart Physic Garden. That's right. That's right. That's uh, it. He's responsible for two sort of scientific institutions of the day: the British Museum and the Chelsea Physic Garden. That's right. Um, and so he's with, also deeply involved. He's a, he's a doctor in Jamaica, so he's involved in the slave trade and the sugar trade. Um, and I mean, they all are in one way or the other. That's exactly right. And, and I think he also married Rich, um, but I can't remember that. But anyways, yeah. he, and he, has, he, like all these guys, has 10 fingers, all of which are in a separate pie. They're very, you know, they're very involved in lots of different things. Absolutely, absolutely. With, with Sloan, Catesby's letters are more of the sort of, Dear sir, I hope I haven't offended you by my delay in sending you plants. I mean, that's the sort of, that was the dynamic going on with, with him and Sloan. Yeah. yeah. But, Sloan, so, but Sloan made amazing resources available to Catesby. We know that Catesby went to his, um, to his collection, to Sloan's collections and, and picked up so much. For example, he, you know, he, he discovered Marion, uh, uh, Maria Marion's artwork uh, there. And we know that that influenced some of his art that he did. Uh, the illustration of natural history. So he had access to Sloan's collections and, and made good use of them. Mm-hmm. Did he, uh, bef- we, we'll, we'll talk about his artistic influences later. What about Peter Collinson? He's another one of these. Uh, he, uh, John Custis uh, writes to him constantly. Um, and he's also friends with Benjamin Franklin. I mean, Peter Collinson knows everybody in the 18th century. And I think Catesby and he also correspond, don't they, eventually? Collinson, and he did, in fact, with with. With Collinson, Catesby's dynamic is, let me send you some things, even though you're not one of my patrons. Don't tell Hans Sloan. Don't tell Bard. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me in trouble because they're begging me all the time. They're, they're demanding stuff all the time. But here you go. Let me slide you a few things on the side, too. So, yes, they had a very, they had a very close relationship. So we see, I mean, this is exactly how you started out talking about this, this Augustan age. This is it's an age of commerce and competition and striving. And it's... It, this is what collecting is. It's a it's a very busy game, and it's a very serious game. And and for if Hans Sloan is involved, it's a very ruthless game. Exactly. The cabinets of curiosities were not just intellectual playthings. There were also major marks of stature. Um, yeah. What you had in your what you could display to your peers and then your in your salons was helped make who you were. And let's face it, even to this day, collectors can be very strange about the things they collect, whether it's you know, Mickey Mouse's or fountain pens or, you know, whatever. And this is this is an age which sort of um, it, it, it holds up on a pedestal. People who collect the strangest fountain pen. You know, that's that's right. And if, if they existed in 1735, they they would have they would have really applauded the guy with the strangest one. That's right. It's an interesting side note that the Royal Society, when they first start collecting things in the early 1700s, they can't they take a little while to figure out exactly what what the standards are going to be for what they're going to have in their collections, right? So they sort of um, in their zeal for exploring and and zeal for knowledge, they sort of veer off into the two headed calves and that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah. and catch a lot of grief for it before they finally sort of straighten out and go more more strictly scientific about it. I, I, I'm sure there was someone in the 1720s with a really incredible collection of two-headed calves <laughs> in, in in alcohol. Uh, there undoubtedly right. was. 
Um, so he's when he's back in England, uh, we uh, since let's just go right to 1722. 1722, he sets out for for Charlestown in South Carolina, and uh, how and why. Well, the how is those patrons I mentioned before, the people like Francis Nicholson, the Earl of Chandos, were uh, actively seeking someone who could do what Caseby ends up doing, which is um, who could go over to the colonies and tell them, especially to South Carolina, and tell them what was there and what might be the potential for it. Um, mm -hmm. And Francis Nicholson, I should say, another probably one, my favorite imperial official of all time, um, <laughs> As you described him as the utility infielder of the British Empire, of the, for, of the early British Empire, uh, he is the fireman. He goes from failing colony to failing colony, either improving things or often making things worse. <laughs> but at various times, governor of what? Uh, Maryland, Virginia, Maryland, Virginia, Nova Scotia, and South Carolina, I think. And I'm, I'm missing something else, I'm, I'm sure. Well, I think. Uh, it seems that the, uh, the, the South Carolina trip might have been one of his brighter spots because he doesn't. I don't. I don't think he leaves cut a trail of, of tragedy in that. Regard. Oh no! There's a there's a there's a there's a pamphlet trail that there's a pamphlet war that begins after that because he's the one that turns it from a proprietary colony into a royal colony. That's right. There was uh, so there's that situation. There, there was a, believe me, wherever Nicholson goes, there's outraged letters <laughs> and probably pamphlets alleging all sorts of sexual and moral, you know, problems with everybody involved. Well, then we'll just stick with the fact that he helped get Catesby over here and get due credit for that and move on. Yeah. Well, he, and he, cause he has, even though he's not much of a scientific man, he believes these sorts of things are important. Right. You right. Know. Right. And this is where we see once again, Casey's, uh, knack for, you know, um, um, being willing to use his status as a landed, landed gentleman for entree, um, not only with the governor of the colony, um, but also with, you know, the landed, um, uh, planters of the low country in South Carolina um, mm -hmm. and, you know, people like the governor of Bahamas later on. So he was, he was quite comfortable moving in those circles, maybe not Hans Sloan circles, but other than that, um, you know, quite comfortable in that world. So what does he do in, in, in South Carolina? Do, what do we know about how he goes about his, as he, his, his work and what, or what can we piece together of how he goes about his work? Well, he, um, you know, this is when the, the trail starts to pick up. Uh, we start getting regular, we have uh, regular letters from him to Sherard where he's talking about where he's going and what he's doing. And, and oh, by the way, here are 40 plants I'm sending you <laughs> by, the next, by the next ship. But uh, so he spent the first year or so in the low country um, traveling around. He visited six or seven of the planters, spent time in their homes, um, and then the following year, 1723-24, he goes for the first time out to Fort Moore, um, which is right across the Savannah River from present-day Augusta, Georgia. That was the frontier in 1723. Um, and spent a bit of time out there. Um, and then just spent the rest of his you know, next year or two just sort of going back and forth between those two parts of South Carolina, uh, collecting uh, and inter interacting with Indian traders, uh, Native Americans, planters, and the enslaved Africans. Uh, so this is one of the interesting things that you tease out is that um, important sources of Catesby gets important uh, information from both enslaved people, but also from Indians, and he does this in Virginia and then also in Carolina. 
So what, what's some of the things that he learns from both enslaved people and from natives? That's right. When they, when they make the major motion picture about Catesby's life based on my book, I want to, <laughs> I want to have a scene where he goes, he walks out of one of these low country mansions and then walks behind it to um, where the enslaved Africans live and talk to them about you know, what they grew for food and medicine because that's exactly what he did. We know that from his descriptions of what he, what he talks about in the natural history. Um, he even refers to, even he uses, he uses the phrase, an esteemed Negro doctor, mm-hmm. which is not something that many Europeans are saying about, about anyone of that, of that race in the 1700s. Um, but so, yeah, he learns about uh, uh, the, foods they, the foods they eat, the, um, the herbal remedies they have for different things, um, the, uh, the, uh, the taro root that they like to eat, how they go about preparing that. Um, so, yeah. It's, so he's, he, he's an anthropologist in his own way. That's the interesting thing about natural history. It's not only a... Um, it's not only a natural history work, it's also one of the earliest ethnographical works we have about about the colonies. Mm-hmm. Because he's giving us these details about uh, Native Americans and and the enslaved Africans. Of course, for the Native Americans, he takes a lot of it from John Lawson. Well, I guess we can, we can talk about it a bit. But. Yeah, we need to talk about John Lawson. I'm sorry for all these names, <laughs> but they are, this is all part of the, this is, you know, is this is the Republic of Letters, and it's the web of the network of relationships, which I, makes all these things possible. And it's a time when you're allowed to do that. You can say, what I'm about to stick in the book now came directly from John Lawson, but I saw it too, and it's true, so I'm just going to slap, slap a big chunk of his writing in here right. and, and call it you know, part of my book. Um, and John Lawson is a, a guy who had done had walked across the Carolinas, spent time with the Tuscarora, eventually was killed by them. Um, like Catesby is both a scientist and also a commercial venturer who's kind of on the make. That's right. And if he hadn't died long, not long before Catesby arrived over there, he might have been Catesby. He might he wanted to do a more comprehensive look at the flora and fauna of Carolina, as Catesby turned out to be the first to do. Um, right. But Catesby did spend a bunch of time, you know, in, in spite of using uh, Lawson's uh, writings about it in natural history, he spent an incredible amount of time with uh, Native Americans. He hunted with them, he slept in their huts, he hired them to help him with his researches when they would, you know, so they would build a bark a bark uh, hut over his artwork and his specimens mm-hmm. to keep them from getting wet in the rain. Um, so, and he had quite a lot uh, to say about them that was, that was uh, positive. So, um, he seems to be one of the very first to talk about not only the interrelationships between uh, plants and animals in this new landscape, but also the relationships between these three very divergent uh, cultures that are coming together, you know, whether by choice or by force, um, in the new world. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we know about what he's drawing is he drawing do we have any idea if he's starting to sketch things or experimenting with drawing or yeah we 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 do we have we have some uh, indications that he did he did line drawings out in the field which he would come back to he had a home base in charleston with an oxford chain doctor friend of his and um he would make uh he would do drawings and give himself give himself color notations you know to write on that this part is green and this part is blue and that sort of thing and then he would come back and do watercolors 
full, full watercolor uh, sketches, which he would eventually bring back to England and turn into the into the natural history. So, well, we'll get back to sort of the artistic achievement that uh, later. But we did say that unlike Audubon, he draws from life, and we of course were. What we're saying is Audubon shot everything and then sort of looked at it very carefully and, and very beautifully and created the, I mean, the surpassing uh, work of art that he did create, but through lots of studies from death. But when Kate Speed does, I mean, my favorite, I guess, is the Mockingbird in the, is that in a dogwood, I think? And uh, the that Mockingbird is drawn from life. Yeah, yeah. The Blue Jay, too. The Blue Jay is yeah. an amazingly dynamic uh, work. Um, you know, it's basically known now more as an artist than he is as a naturalist. Um, you know, I, I know people who have prints of his and, and copies of prints of his. And, and uh, so, yeah, he was he was very much, uh, uh, he was very proud of having did this from life, having done this from life. He wrote that in the natural history, um, except for very, very few occasions. Um, fish were a different matter, but, <laughs> but birds. <laughs> fish are difficult. Yes, fish, fish well, are hard. Uh, we'll talk about that because it, right now, because he went to the Bahamas. Yes. Um, and when he was, when he would see these, I mean, if only he'd had a, sn uh, a snorkel gear, uh, <laughs> but he saw this beautiful fish in the water and he'd pull them out and then they're not beautiful. Immediately anymore. they start fading. So he, and he talks about that in the natural history and his methods. He spends a decent amount of time talking about his methods and uh, how he had this sort of, he had to um, uh, view them from life a lot <laughs> to get one fish. You know, he'd pull one up and the colors would immediately start fading and he'd have to do another one. And so, I mean, um, you know, it sounds like some fish died, even though some birds may not have. Uh, it's yeah. art. Um, the Bahamas, what, when does he, how long has he been in, Carol, in the Carolina before he goes to uh, the Bahamas? So it's about three years in the South Carolina and then a year in the Bahamas. Um, a year in the Bahamas. Yeah, wow, that's a long time in the Bahamas, considering that there are a bunch of sand dunes <laughs> occupied. It, which, I, as I said in the notes to you, it's like going to, you know, a plant hunting expedition in Afghanistan in 1998, or like Somalia now. I mean, it's a. It, you should explain why. I mean, it's a crazy kind of choice, to my mind. Yeah, um, it was mainly for the marine life that he went there. I mean, from yeah. on, on that basis, it's a it's a very fertile and, and uh, burgeoning ecosystem. Yeah, you know, but until ten years before, it had been the place to see a pirate, you know, <laughs> right. or hang out with pirates. That's right. That's right. One of the cool things about this book is that I got to write about pirates. Um, yeah, for the, sure. Catesby and, and the age of piracy do overlap to a degree. Um, although seventeen twenty six, the year he leaves Bahamas, is literally the year that the British Navy shuts down the pirates forever. Um, the golden age of piracy, which was literally only a decade. Another interesting thing I learned while, while researching this book <laughs> comes to an abrupt end yeah. then. And of course, Blackbeard is already dead. He's already been beheaded off Ocracoke. Um, uh -huh. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, the, he, he, he deliberately saved his study of marine species until he got to the Bahamas, um, did a fairly thorough study. In fact, his book was the reference book for Bahamian um, natural history. Um, until the 1920s so um he did a, quite a lot of work in his brief year there and had a first too there are several great firsts in his career and one of them he's uh again he's hanging out with the go governor he's with the governor of the bahamas and he talks about 
um, how the governor was uh, examining his toes for these chigo fleas, um, which I thought were chiggers, but they're not. They're actually a different thing called chigo fleas. And apparently they, he found some because they uh, examined them under a microscope. Uh, account, and this is the first mention of a microscope being used in the New World in 1725. Um, so you have all these sorts of interesting first. Okay, so he was the first to describe the dung beetle um, in America. He was, and of course, there are all these first that he was the first to illustrate animals of. No one in England had, had any idea what a ivory-billed woodpecker looked like, or a magnolia tree, or American bullfrog, or so many other species until Catesby's illustrations of them were brought back to England. So let's let's talk about that. He he's, goes back to England, and he starts putting together his this natural history. Um, what are the artistic influences on him when he does this? <clears throat> well, I mentioned one major one, and that was uh, Maria Frances no, Maria Sibylla Marion, sorry. She was a Dutch uh, painter who was an artist who had an amazing career. Uh, in the late 1600s, she went to Suriname, um, essentially the Dutch colony in Central America, um, with only her daughter, with no men accompanying her, uh, which makes her stand out right away um, in, the, in that historically in that time. Um, and she spent uh, a little over a year uh, doing beautiful, just gorgeous, bright, brilliant, dynamic uh, paintings of insects mainly, but also plants and also reptiles and things like that. She was most concerned with or interested in metamorphosis, the life stages of insects. And so she would do these wonderful uh, compositions with uh, all of the life stages of a certain insect on one on one plate with, um, with plants and a snake curling around and so it was uh it was very ornate and fecund in a way but also quite scientific and detailed and um mm -hmm. you can tell from Catesby's art that he took some lessons from her and sort of the dynamics of the compositions and that sort of thing as well as combining the the plants and animals together i mean you know Catesby was is known today for being one of the first to put for instance a bird on the plant that it fed on that sort of thing so it's sort of mm -hmm portraying those, those ecological relationships. He's actually considered a proto-ecologist, sort of a predecessor of people like Humboldt and people like that, thinking in terms of a larger sort of ecological uh, sense. And so he... And sometimes he does that for artistic style in ways that don't work out naturalistically. You give that example in right. the Bahamas, right? That's right. One that? of my favorite artworks, and um, Pegasus... Uh, Pegasus was kind enough to put it in the book was uh, a flamingo and he, he put this Gorgonian this this um, marine uh, animal that looks like a coral and yanked it out of the ocean and just stuck it on the ground right behind the flamingo so has no scientific validity where it is but it's artistically it's a great composition and it looks really sort of modern in its use of space and sort of the graphic mm -hmm. yeah so it, that's it an example of where sometimes Catesby was more artist than naturalist, which is, you know, it's okay. You have to, he had to be both. Right. Right. Um, um, but he, uh, so, but as I recall, I, I, hum, uh, humbled Audubon showed things like, um, was it the mockingbirds being attacked by a rattlesnake or something like that? Catesby doesn't go to that level of trying to create a, a, a vignette of natural life. That's right. He's, yeah, a tableau. He's simply creating a more static tableau, you know, uh, rather than uh, than 
what Humboldt achieves. That's right. There's one. There's one um, exception. The very first plate of the natural history um, is the bald eagle, and it is uh, uh, diving for a fish with a an, an osprey in the background, background looking as though it, it had just had a pocket <laughs> pick. So um, <laughs> that's probably as close to a dynamic sort of thing as you get with Catesby. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so how long did it take him to, to do all this? I mean, how many plates are there, roughly? I mean, it's uh, it's it's two volumes. Uh, it came out well, two volumes separately, too. Well, it right? came out in 10 installments plus an appendix. Oh. And there were um, there were 20 plates in each of the 10. Uh, so 200 plates plus the appendix, which had its own 20, 30-odd plates as well. Um, when he published the prospectus in 1729 and 30, um, he said that he would produce uh, an installment every four months <laughs> and it took him in fact it took him from 1731 to 1747 to uh to complete the whole thing so um a little bit more of an undertaking than he planned on it and taking so we should explain this this being not the way that publishing works today though i expect it we might soon again have to put out a prospectus and get subscribers before we publish. it could it could happen any decade now that's right um that's what he had to do. He would, you basically got people to buy an advanced copy. It's sort of like crowdfunding. Right. It's like a crowdsourcing. Exactly. Go fund me. Um, yeah, yeah, go he, fund had me to, yeah. he had to solicit subscribers and, and, uh, and uh, fund it as he went. Uh, a little help from, from uh, Collinson and, and a couple of others to help him, to help him uh, get off. The Pay the rent. And he had to teach himself how to etch too, because he couldn't afford to have it taken over to the bottom. Right. To get it, uh, to get it engraved or etched for him. So he taught himself how to etch with one of the major uh, engravers of the day, uh, Goupy, G-O-U-P-Y, um, and, uh, and yeah. Can you, can you explain what that means? Because you know, uh, fifty years later, I, I've been reading a lot about John Trumbull uh, lately, and Trumbull is a pretty good artist, but he decides not to teach himself how to engrave. That's just too much time. Um, so we have to explain what what is involved in etching and engraving. Yeah, and and uh, I meant to go uh, personally learn how to do that, or at least see it done when I wrote the book, but I never got around to it. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's the process of using a sharp metal tool to uh, etch into a metal plate the lines that you're going to uh, that you're going to need for the illustration, and so. Um, if you look at any of Catesby's, if you're fortunate enough to see a, an, an actual printing of Catesby's book, which I was not too long ago, they, the detail is incredible. And to even though you've already done the drawing and it's your painting you're working from, to con, you know to convert that to an etching is an immense, immense undertaking and just takes so much time yeah. and attention to detail. But he learned how and to we, do that. And um, yeah, and, and that might sound trivial to people, but uh, what. People who work in oils don't work with watercolors and vice versa. And this is an even bigger jump to go from making crayon sketches of something to then having to learn how to draw on metal and produce um, an effect backwards, upside down, well, at least backwards, of, of three-dimensional, the, the artistic effect of, of cross-hatching and all the rest, and then color the plates after they've been printed. This is like that's it's a it's a job. That's right, and he says he uses the language that it was done in in his house in terms of producing the book, but it is um, it is statistically impossible for him to have colored all of the plates of all the books he sold. But 
yeah. we surmise that he oversaw the coloring of, of the plates that, that he uh, that he created with his etchings. So, so did he achieve a certain level of fame with this? Did he uh, or or money? I mean, how many of these things did he sell? I mean, of uh, uh, his books, did he sell? He had, I think, he had something like 180 subscribers all told. I'm not totally sure how many copies some of them may have bought. Um, it was um, the thing is, it was very expensive. It was the most it was the most expensive book of natural history of the age, and one of the most expensive books available. Period. Um, oh, really, about twenty so, guineas, I mean, oh, which um, was twenty twenty guineas, um, which is um, a little more than the yearly wages of a laborer in the British Isles at that at that point. So, um, just an amazingly expensive and luxurious. Magnificent, large-scale, like Audubon, um, work that I think uh, spread farther its reputation and, uh, and knowledge of it spread far beyond its actual presence. If you know what I mean, it's sort of a outsized mm -hmm. in that way. Uh, but no, the mm -hmm. Royal Society called that other than magnificent work, and um, Queen Caroline, George II's wife, was uh, a sponsor. Uh, yeah approved the dedication of it to her and uh yeah it, it caused quite the splash when it began coming out in 1731 so it did it did it secure him a fellowship in the royal society i mean was that was that he was a fellow yes and he was quite an, an integral part of its operations in the seven late 1730s and early 1740s um, how so well, he spoke there regularly. He was attended meetings. He did some work for the. I think he provided some illustrations for the Royal Society, um, and uh, and he had a famous moment there when he speaks to them in 1746 about um, what he had seen in terms of um, how birds acted in the New World. Um, he spoke of lying on a sloop off of Cuba and watching rice birds, as he called them, uh, bobolinks for us. And he watched them journeying north toward north toward South Carolina, right about the time the rice crop was coming into uh, into fruition. And then, eventually, he later saw them going back down south. And so he uh, uh, he urged the Royal Society to consider the likelihood that birds migrated during the colder part of the year, which was not a generally accepted idea at that point. You know, some people still held to Aristotle's belief that they dug holes in the mud and and it slept hibernated through the winter. So Catesby was a major mover in bringing the idea of migration of birds based on his firsthand experiences in uh, the colonies to the Royal Society. So what was his like? Um, so he, he, I'm sorry, but you said the last volume was printed in what year? 1747. 1747. Oh, okay. And so he, and he died in what year? 49. So he just so really from returning to from his return from the Carolinas, the Bahamas, his life was devoted to getting out the natural history and publishing it and, and etching, engraving, coloring, supervising the coloring, all the rest of it. That's right. But he also had this entirely other side of his career, which is which was as a horticulturalist. Um, mm. You know, from the time he had started sending seeds and plantings and everything back to uh, London during his time in in uh, Virginia and especially in South Carolina, he had become a major player in this burgeoning um, 
adaptation and cultivation of American plants in England and in, and in the British Isles. Um, and so when he came back to England in 1730, in 1726, sorry, um, he picks right up there. He's, uh, he, he, uh, he's in close connection with major nurserymen in London. He's helping to purvey seeds and plants to gardeners across the, across the British Isles. He's directly responsible for the popularity of things like the magnolia tree and the catalpa tree and things like that. Um, and so he has, and he even puts out a circular, his very last publication, the Horta Britannicus, which is a one-page sort of broadsheet listing all the plants available at the nursery that, that he was connected with. Um, so he has this sort of a, a Johnny Appleseed type thing going on, um, if I can transmogrify that to the British islands. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and, you know, he's, uh, he's directly responsible for a lot of that, a lot of that um, boom in sort of American gardens in the British Isles. I was thinking more of the he's the he's the William Attlee Burpee of 18th century. Uh, yeah, but Johnny Appleseed will do. I mean, this is again uh, science, commerce, commerce, science. Exactly. You know, there 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 is no separation in his mind or or life. Um, what was his legacy? Uh, he died. Did he, did he have any children? Uh, did yeah. he, I, I, I should I should ask about his personal life. <laughs> uh, he, had, he had a common law marriage, didn't he, or something he that did, eventually man. was solemnized? It's very interesting about Catesby's sort of non, um, non-intellectual non life because yeah. he starts out, as we say, he starts out as a landed uh, gentleman. Um, by the time he comes back to uh, to London in 1726, he's, you know, he's living, he's, he's probably living at the nursery of one of his his friends and so we can only speculate that that his travels and everything his his explorations and his research you know drained his estate to the extent that he had really very little left to to live on um he has a common law wife that we don't even well they do get married like a year before he died but they were together for 17 years before that and so elizabeth and so and he has four or five surviving children i think um so it's an interesting sort of another gap in the knowledge. We don't know what happened to his circumstances or why he, he's such changed in status between this, his early life and his later life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know anything about the rest of his family, like his sister who is in Williamsburg, um, marrying into one of the innumerable Cokes? <laughs> Um, the, the cokes are everywhere, That's right. even to this day. That's right. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, there's there's one in Swanee too. People ask me if there's a Swanee connection to this book, and there's a William Cox, same as the same as his yeah. uh, brother-in-law. And yeah. when I say it's a Swanee connection. I say, prove me wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, I mean the family continues. He had there are letters back and forth to his nieces um, in Virginia mm-hmm. um, while he's in London. So. Um, that, that family connection is, is, is still there um, during his lifetime. Um, he had a brother, a younger brother, who was in the army, um, stationed in Gibraltar. Um, again, not a, and and not as a, a landed gentleman sort of position, but just a basic infantryman or something like that. So again, you see the family circumstances um, being what yeah. they are. Yeah. Um, after his death. What happened to the natural history? There's a Princeton University Press has a, I think a biographies of famous books series. Um, what would the biography of the natural history of 
Let me get. Let me get it right. Uh, no, I, Carolina, Florida, the Bahamas. What would it, what would its biography be like? It'd be kind of quiet, restrained. Uh, doesn't go out much. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, um, there was a second edition not long after his death, um, and a third edition in 1771, and that's the one I actually got to lay hands on recently um, at the University of Mississippi, actually at Ole Miss in their archives. Um, and I got to see just for myself how just what a beautiful work of art it is and how vibrant the colors are even 250 years later. Um, but it does fade out. You know, uh, Linnaeus comes along and changes all the taxonomies of animals. Um, and uh, his work falls out of favor. A lot of social, social trends are happening that makes him his book less desirable than it would have been in 1749. Well, I should point. Linnaeus did name the bullfrog, the American bullfrog, after Catesby. That's true. Uh, That's true. Rana Catesbyana. I, I, I found this out <laughs> from you, and I looked it up, and I mean, and he, and I didn't realize the connection that he was that Catesby Peter Calm, who for traveled throughout North America collecting for Linnaeus, had also known uh, had come to meet Catesby before. I guess before he went to came to New Jersey, right? Or, and and. In Philadelphia, yeah. So there's a, there's a connection there too. That's right. Um, you know, um, King George III ended up buying all of Casey's watercolors and sketches. Um, they're at the Royal Library in Windsor Castle now. Um, Thomas Jefferson bought a copy of the Natural History. Um, Lewis and Clark consulted it before their trip, um, for their expedition, um, and. As you mentioned, uh, John Bartram uh, was a correspondent with Catesby, and so um, oh, yeah, that was another example, another way that sort of Catesby's reputation extended beyond him personally. Um, and a half a century later, William Bartram, the son, of course, will go through the southeast and, and write his own. Follows many of the same goes on many of the same journeys. That's right, mm-hmm. and it it surpasses um, Catesby's work really. I mean, you know, that's this whole thing started for me in the 1990s when I was reading a lot of people and I read I read Bartram and I saw some little blurb about something about Catesby in a magazine. I think it probably would have been an art exhibition, I'm thinking now. And I thought, mm-hmm. hmm, that sounds interesting. I wonder what there is to learn about him. And there was nothing <laughs> in the 1990s mm-hmm. about it. And uh, I just sort of shrugged and moved on. And then um, literally after finishing book number one, I was just sort of in between and didn't know what I was going to do. And the idea of a Catesby book just popped into my brain. So it's a good idea. See, um, so the 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 fifty dollar question is, what did John James Audubon know about Catesby? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, and no one knows. He, he did. <laughs> Who's that? I think he did know who he was. He knew of him, um, but I, again, there's nothing. There's not that much substantial to go on there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I've fallen totally fallen prey to the cliche, and now become an ardent defender of Catesby. So, <laughs> an advocate of Catesby, you know, especially in comparison with, with the Audubon. So, I don't. I don't know how much I want to get into that. But um, I just, I just wish Catesby had been alive to uh, to to be. I mean, Audubon, as you said, brilliant artist and a brilliant self promoter, and I mean that in a very good way, in a positive way. And I wish that he was very good at marketing his his himself and his art. Um, and I kind of wish Catesby had had more time on earth to sort of promote his own book and, and be a, you know, be a, be a voice in, in, in his own behalf. 
My guest today has been Patrick Dean. The book is Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures in a New World. Patrick, thanks for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Glad to join you. Thanks so much, Al. Appreciate it. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 